I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, and that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we dare our as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we attempt to shift our perspective from the traditional and societal viewpoint of good versus evil and move it more towards perspective of life versus death. We are going through scripture, and you've probably noticed by now that we are taking the long, slow road through scripture. We're doing the three-year cycle, the first five books of the Bible. And as we proceeded through each of these individual pieces each week, these pieces known as parches, We've been very purposeful in discovering what the topic is that's being discussed in each of the Parshas as they were defined long ago. Because the fact is, and as we have seen, and as we will continue to see, the splits that were placed in the text for each of these Parshas wasn't just an arbitrary split. It was very intentional. It was based on themes as they are represented in the text. The rabbis that made these splits, they, they did so with a purpose in mind, with an intent in mind, and that was because they had defined certain themes in each of these sections. As scripture opened, the themes that were covered were very grand and sweeping, and yet even in those grand and sweeping themes, there were still very personal and applicable applications. Here, as scriptures transition now into the story of Avram, the theme has shifted to the more personal and intimate themes of an individual. The first week of chapters 12 through 13, we saw the topic of dedication and the dedication that it takes to follow God where, wherever he leads. Dedication to God is something that many of us, we want to pay lip service to, but few of us are really willing to act it out in our lives. When circumstances get tough or the way seems closed, we tend to shut down, we shrug our shoulders, and we move on to something else. The following week in chapter 14, we saw a glimpse of biblical definition of righteousness. Ketelaomer, the king, he did all of the right things. He pursued covenant. He destroyed those who were opposed to the natural order. He acted in the right way, and yet he is not the one who is called righteous in the text. It is Melchizedek that is called the righteous king. Why? He is a priest of the Most High God. He is the king of peace. He blesses Avraham and is in return blessed by Avraham. Then in chapter 15, we read of the covenant that was created by God, a one-way covenant, and the idea of the covenant that connects together the realms of righteousness and faith. And in that chapter, we saw Abraham called out for his exceptional faith. But as we looked further, we saw that his faith didn't begin in chapter 15. It's something that was present all the way back in chapter 12. And it's Abraham's faith that led him to act. And it was his acting that demonstrated his faith. And even through that, as we looked, we saw that his faith, he still had doubts in his faith. He still wanted signs that things were going to occur. His faith wasn't something that was so well-grounded that he didn't need some sort of assurance from God that what God had promised would be true. In this way, faith and righteousness 
are joined together in a symbiosis that requires one before the other can even exist. Both are absolutely necessary to the life of one of God's covenant partners. This week, things don't get any easier. These past few weeks, we've been exploring Avram doing all the right things, but the fact is, in each one of those previous parshas, Avram failed in some way. There's something that he did in each one of those that, that wasn't quite up to the standard that God expects of his people. And we'll look at the failures of the life of Avraham in an upcoming lesson. But please be aware, Avraham was not perfect. He failed every test to one degree or another, except for one. The last few weeks we've been examining the example of Avraham as a positive example. Avraham did this, and so do you likewise. Now this week, we see a negative example. What not to do, how not to act. This week we get a really good glimpse about one of Abraham's significant failures in Scripture. And many times those who disagree with the Bible will point to stories such as the one in this chapter, will strip it of its historical and societal context, and then they will attempt to use it too as a positive example. They'll say, well, Abraham did this, or is this something that you're going to do too? They're completely ignoring what it is and how the, the text steeps this story. They approach scripture as if every story of the patriarchs is teaching its proper morality from a positive or a do-this-thing point of view. But that's simply not the case. And as we go through scripture, as we get into these stories of the patriarchs throughout the rest of the book of Genesis, we're going to see so many examples of failure, so many examples of sin in their lives, so many examples of them not living up to what it was that God had for them. And so for people to come to Scripture and say, well, are you going to marry your sister? Or are you going to sleep with the maid? Are you going to do this thing or that thing? It's disingenuous to say the best. Alternatively, many times those who are opposed to Scripture, and even many of those who are not opposed, they will look at the story from a Western context point of view and look backwards upon it and impose our moral standards upon the people in these stories. And if we examine it that way, we'll find that, okay, sure, according to our current moral standard, what they're doing isn't right. And the Bible kind of tells us that. But as we examine it, we will find that what occurred in this story, it was the societal norm of the day. Because we're going to get into a lot of history and a lot of ancient Near East context today. We may call it barbaric, but then again, there are things in our society that they would look on and they would call barbaric. <laughs> Don't get me started on what exactly those things are. So when we put this story in its historical and societal context, we'll find that it's not what many of us have been led to believe it to be. And yet, in many ways, it is what we've been taught for so long. Because life is complicated. That's, that's a simple fact of the matter. And this chapter of Genesis, as we explore life through its pages is complicated. So let's go ahead and read Genesis 16, and then we'll discuss the context of what we see here. And then we'll discover uh, what we can learn from it as far as its theme and the questions of life are concerned. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis 16. Genesis 16. And Sarai, Avram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had a Mitzrayan female servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Avram, See, Hashem has kept me from bearing children. Please go into my female servant. It might be that I am built up by her. And Avram listened to the voice of Sarai. 
And Sarai, Avram's wife, took Hagar, her female servant, the Mitzrayim, and gave her to her husband Avram to be his wife, after Avram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. And he went in to Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes. And Sarai said to Avram, My wrong be upon you. I gave my female servant into your bosom, and when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her eyes. Let Hashem judge between you and me. And Avram said to Sarai, See, your female servant is in your hand. Do to her what is good in your eyes. And Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. And the messenger of Hashem found her by a spring of water in the wilderness by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's female servant, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of Sarai, my mistress. And the messenger of Hashem said to her, Return to your mistress and humble yourself under her hand. And the messenger of Hashem said to her, I am going to increase your seed greatly, too numerous to be counted. And the messenger of Hashem said to her, See, you are conceiving and bearing a son, and shall call his name Yishmael, because Hashem has heard your affliction. And he is to be a wild man, his hand against every one, and every one's hand against him, and dwell over and against his brothers. And she called the name of Hashem who spoke to her, You are the El who sees. For she said, Even here have I seen after him who sees me. And that is why the well was called Ber Lechai Roy. See, it is between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Avram a son, and Avram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore, Yishmael. And Avram was eighty-six years old when Hagar bore Yishmael to Avram. Wow, what a story. <laughs> uh, we'll look at that and we go, as we so often do at the end of many of these stories. How do we how do we learn from something that is so disconnected from where we are in life? And that's one of the challenges, especially in this Parsha and, and several others, uh, the challenges that a modern audience has as they approach Scripture, is that the cultural context of the story is so vastly different from our own. It makes it very difficult for us at many times to pierce through that, to understand what it is that thought was the normal right way of acting, and what they thought was correct and to not impose our own views of right and wrong and moral and moral upon the text in that way. So first things, let, let's recognize the culture that the story is occurring in is not our modern culture. We need to explore the culture a bit and see if we can see things in the story from that point of view a little clearer. I've already spoken about honor and shame in previous episodes. If you don't remember that, go back to the story of Ham and Shem and Japheth in the tent, or Noah getting drunk in the tent. It's such a foundational idea for us to understand and to know what honor and shame is and what a culture that operates in honor and shame is, because it's so very central to everything that's said in the scripture, and our culture doesn't operate in that way. If you haven't learned more about honor and shame dynamic, I highly recommend that you engage in some outside study on this topic. Go to honorshame.com or get a couple books. I, I had a link in that previous episode, Tyler Don Rosenquist's Honor Shame Context for Kids. It does a great job of providing the foundational understanding of honor and shame and how it operates in the biblical context. Because the mindset there is so integral to much of what we read in Scripture. I'm going to attempt to explain honor-shame dynamic as portrayed in this Parsha first. 
And then we'll get into what's called the kinship and sexual relationships in the ancient Near East, because their sexual morality was not the same as ours. So in the ancient Near East, children were everything. Having a child was the woman's primary purpose in marriage. I mean, that's just unfortunate as it was. That's how that world operated at that time. And sex wasn't so much about intimacy or growing closer as individuals, but it was much more about simply creating offspring and perpetuation of the species. And marriage wasn't so much about a feeling as we place on it today. We place, we place love as our primary reason for getting married. We place that, that fuzzy feeling inside of us, but as we see, our marriages fall apart so fast. Basing our marriages on love may not actually be the best way to approach a marriage. In the ancient world, marriage was much more a practical partnership between two people, both being able to provide something to the other that the other couldn't provide for themselves. And to the ancient mind, a person lived on in their children. And this is where life after death was found in the ancient world. They didn't have ideas of people going to heaven or of an existence beyond the, the mortal flesh. Having children was your future. That was how you lived on. And not having children was to be cut off from all existence for the rest of eternity. It was one of the greatest shames that a person could experience. So a woman who was barren was in the ultimate shameful position. And that shame was not limited to just the women. But it would become her husband's shame as well. Because if he kept her around, then he too would be in effect barren. And he would bear the shame of not having any children. Now, they didn't think that men could be barren at that time, that they could not be able to produce children. We know scientifically that that is the fact. But then at that point, it was all on the woman to provide a child. The, the man was assumed to be fertile. It was the woman's duty to give kids to her husband. And that was a very serious business. If a woman didn't bear a child within two years of marriage, she was considered and for all effects and purposes, barren. And the man could then divorce her legally and search for a woman who could bear him children. Two years was all she got. That was her safety net. She had to provide in those two years. And if she didn't, well, we're not willing to take the chances beyond this two years. See you later. I need to find someone who's going to give me children. Thus, it became of the utmost importance for a woman to provide children for her husband because her entire future depended on her ability to have children for her husband. Her standing in society was, was very tenuous and shaky if she was incapable. Fortunately, in the ancient Near East, there were ways to accomplish this. There was always the option of adoption. Adoption was a very ancient Near East custom. We see it all through scripture that this idea of adoption occurred. However, that wouldn't do much for the barren woman. That would simply provide the man an the barren woman wasn't without any recourse. She had an option. Usually this option was only for women who were well-to-do. If, if a woman was poor, then the option wasn't as available to her. But, I mean, we get the same thing today. For a woman of station or means, she would invariably have a servant or a slave, and that slave would tend to her and assist her with various household tasks. They didn't have microwaves, they didn't have hair dryers, they didn't have butchers. Everything that had to be done had to be done by hand from scratch, and it was the servant's job to pick up the slack for her mistress, because it's very difficult for a single person to do all of this. 
And this introduces the idea of slavery, and this too is something that moderns will pick apart as completely immoral. Well, it's just that. It's immoral, according to our definition of morality. It was not immoral according to the ancient definition of moral. And so that shifting morality we see once again rearing its ugly head, and it becomes much clearer that maybe morality isn't the best way to be basing our decisions. But we will encounter slavery later in a greater detail in the Torah. So for now, what is called slavery in Scripture, we should recognize, is not to be equated to our more modern practice of slavery that existed in the United States. In the ancient Near East, slaves existed, but it wasn't the it wasn't the same dichotomy that we experienced here in the U.S. Don't equate the two, and that's where a lot of our our false paradigms come from is in that equation of the racial slavery in the U.S. compared to the ancient slavery in other parts of the world. The fact remains, and it will always be there, that in the ancient Near East, slaves existed. But to be a slave in a wealthy and respected household brought honor to the slave. Avram's slave stood a chance of inheriting Avram's entire household if Avram died without an heir. We read that in last week's Parsha. It was Eliezer of Damascus, a slave in his household, who would have been the heir of Avram's household. That's a significant increase in status. That's a really good place for a slave to be. A slave could inherit the master's things, could inherit the master's position as head of a great household. That would never have happened in, a, in American slavery. Add to this that with the religious outlook of the ancient Near East, if a person was born into slavery, they simply assumed that it was the will of the gods that they be in that position of slavery. It was a caste system similar to Hinduism. Nothing occurred that was not the will of the gods in the ancient Near East. And so being a slave wasn't something to rail against. It was just your lot in life. Deal with it. There were, in actuality, two ways to become a slave in the ancient Near East. One was to be born in it, like I just mentioned, but the other was to be captured by a conquering enemy. Egypt, at this point in history, was the world power, very mighty militarily, and so Hagar could have come from either place. She could have been born into slavery in Egypt, or she could have been one of the people that were conquered by the Egyptian armies at the time and entered into slavery. Regardless of how she entered slavery, however, it was thought that the gods controlled both of these things, birth and wartime, and so she's a slave. Being conquered by an enemy meant that you were, in fact, inferior, that your gods were inferior, your people were inferior, your society was inferior. And so there'd be no question on the part of Hagar in regards to her station. She was an inferior, and her station in life was to be a slave. As a slave, freedom wouldn't really have entered her mind as a possibility. Being a servant in a respectable house was the best case scenario for her, for any slave in that day. Because Hagar, in and of herself, she had no honor. And this is where we get to the honor shame. She had no honor other than the honor she received from being attached to her master. She had no great hope of honor to come, except for one. As a woman, there was the possibility that as a slave, she could become a concubine of the head of the house. So let's get back to the barren woman. 
barren woman in the ancient Near East, they didn't have technology of artificial insemination. They didn't have fertility drugs. They didn't have in vitro fertilization or other techniques to assist a woman in becoming pregnant. Now, earlier, I mentioned that if a woman was a woman of station, a woman of wealth and means, that she had recourse to have children. Well, in the same way, we see the same thing today. If you're a woman of means, you have access to these technologies. But if you're poor, you have no access to in vitro fertilization, fertility drugs, or anything else. In fact, if you're poor, you don't even have access to adoption. Because if, as a poor person, you're not allowed to use the foster system. And as a poor person, you're not allowed to adopt through other means. And so you had to have some sort of wealth and station. Even today, we may rail against that and say it's not fair, but who said life is fair, really? So if a woman was barren, she's barren. She had nothing to do about it. Unless, unless she happened to have a female servant. In this case, if she has a female servant, the woman could use her servant as a surrogate mother for her child. Now, as I stated earlier, the ancient world's not a romantic world, extremely practical. The people were extremely practical. For the barren woman, she would gain a child through this exchange. She would be given honor. The child that was born to her personal servant would then become hers in every way legally. She would no longer carry that stigma of being unable to provide an heir because she would have fulfilled her duty using the resources available to her to provide an heir for her husband. So the choice was the honorable choice for Sarah. For the servant, for the slave woman, this arrangement would mean a significant increase in status and honor. No longer was she simply a slave to the matriarch or the woman of the house, but she was now the concubine of the head of the house, the concubine of a wealthy, powerful, and honorable house. What occurred here didn't happen against Hagar's will. She had everything to gain from this arrangement and nothing to lose. This is not a rape as some have claimed it to be. Hagar gained honor from this situation. Her station would have been improved beyond anything that she could have hoped for in her life. Sure, the child would legally be Sarah's, but everyone would know who the real mother was because it was her son. She would be the one to, to feed it for the first four years or so. She would be the one, everyone would know that she was the one who had the heir, the mother of the heir. Her son, if it was a boy, would become the heir. For a slave to have a child that would become the heir of a great household, she had everything to gain. She was not taken or given against her will. Everybody in this situation was fully willing to engage in the situation. The relationship between the barren woman and her slave, however, the wife and the, and the concubine, wouldn't change in essence upon a successful pregnancy. The mother would still be the slave of the wife. She was simply acting in the place of the wife for the purpose of bearing children. It's no different than her acting in the place of a wife when brushing her the woman's hair or preparing a meal for the family or doing other things that slaves would do as a stand-in for the wife. She's now simply a stand-in in the bedroom. The child would be the wife's child, and the servant would still be the wife's servant. The husband, for that matter, 
would not be able to choose to spend the night with the concubine at his or even her choice. The only one who could choose to send the concubine in was the wife whose servant she was. The concubine in the situation would only be able to spend a night with the husband if her mistress, the husband's wife, sent her in to her husband. So if the wife wanted multiple children through the slave, then she would be a regular fixture in the husband's bed for the purpose of children. If the wife only wanted one offspring, an heir, then the con- upon the conception of the first child, the concubine would likely never again sleep with the husband, ever again. She would have a place of honor, but she wouldn't have that regular, she wouldn't be that regular fixture in his household or in his bed. Regardless of how many translations translate it, Hagar was not given as a wife. In Hebrew, there is no specific word for wife. It's just the word woman. Anytime you read the word wife in Hebrew, it just it's just the Hebrew word woman, and it's an imposition of the translators to make it to make the distinction of wife or woman. Please be aware of that. If you'd like to learn more about these relationships, about uh, what's going on here in the relationship of these people with each other and how it all plays out, I highly recommend another of Tyler Don Rosenquist's books. She does some really great work of setting foundations that you can then build upon through other works. But this one's called Context for Adults, Sexuality, Social Identity, and Kinship Relationships in the Bible. Very good starting point. It goes through and explores many of these obscure and questionable stories and and reveals that what we think about what's going on in the story may not actually be what we have been told all along. Because, as I said, as I opened with, too many times we take our modern interpretations and our modern understandings and impose it upon the text without ever trying to understand the mind and the society and the culture of the people in the text. So, with all of that in place, that none of this was against anyone's will, let's go back to the narrative and let's explore the narrative a little and see what we can learn from it. So, the chapter opens with Sarah. And Sarah, as the wife of Abraham, it's very likely that she is aware that the promises that God has given to Abraham. And her own barrenness is weighing on her beyond simply not giving Avram an heir. There's the societal aspect of I'm not giving my husband an heir, and that's shameful. But it's highly likely, I find, that she feels as if she's keeping Avram from his destiny. God has promised Avram to have this great destiny, and I'm in the way. I'm holding him back. He'd be better off without me. It is this, perhaps more than anything else, that impels Sarai to this course of action. She states that Hashem has kept me from bearing children. Hashem made this promise of children to Abraham. So if Hashem is keeping me from having children, then there's obviously an issue with me. So, Abraham, please use my slave and use the societal norm. And perhaps I will gain children for you through this method. And the end of verse 2 is very interesting because if we're paying close attention to the phrasing of the Bible, the, the way that the end of verse 2 is phrased should pique our attention. As it says, And Avram listened to the voice of his wife. 
Now, first of all, we need to realize that in Hebrew, there's no separate word for listening or hearing and then doing what is heard. Hear, obey, same idea. And this is one of the essential paradigms in biblical Hebrew that modern readers don't quite grasp, in my opinion. It's that in biblical Hebrew, there are no passive verbs. In English, we can listen and hear, and it simply means that sound waves have bounced off of our eardrums. No action is necessary to hear something or to listen to something. But in biblical Hebrew, if you did not do something with what bounced off your eardrums, then you did not hear. You did not shema. Same thing for seeing. Looking at something and having it passively just enter your, your optic nerves, that's not seeing. You haven't seen something until what has entered your eyeballs has registered and caused you to do an action, caused you to operate with what you've seen, to change your way of, of working or to change what you're doing in the moment. Passive verbs don't exist in biblical Hebrew, and we need to understand that. So in reality, this end of verse 2 could be an Avram obeyed the voice of his wife, not just heard, because listening and hearing and obeying, they are all wrapped up together. So where else have we heard this phrase? Well, if we turn all the way back to Genesis 3 and verse 17, we will read this phrase there. And this is when God is giving his judgment upon Adam. And to the man, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, saying, Do not eat of it, curses the ground because of you. In toil you are to eat of it all the days of your life. This story seems to be intentionally trying to get us to look back at Genesis 3 and the eating of the fruit of the tree of knowledge. It's an attempt to get us to realize that what's happening here is not only a temptation, but it's a story of succumbing to temptation. So if we look at the story from the ancient perspective, then we would think that everything here was done as normal, as moral. If we don't go any deeper than the, the story itself, we'll be like, well, okay, so cool. Abraham did the right thing. Society said so. Legality said so. Their own sense of morality, right and wrong, said so. He did the good thing. And if we look at the story through human reasoning. But the text wants to make it clear that what he was doing wasn't the right thing. Avram was eating from the tree of knowledge. He was attempting to define the right thing according to his own understanding, and that understanding was his societal and cultural norms. This also gives the idea that even though scripture doesn't specifically stated it, perhaps Avram suspected that Sarai would indeed be the mother of the promised seed. If he suspected that she would be the, the mother of the promised seed, because God never promised that Sarai would be the mother, right? And Abram knew what the right thing to do was, and yet when his wife offered her handmaid, he's like, okay, cool, I'll do that. He gave in to fear and doubt and perhaps lust and several other things. And he did what was, in fact, the, the not the right thing. This man whose faith was so solid and praised in this last chapter, suddenly we're seeing once again, he's full of doubts. Once again, he's acting in a way that reveals his human nature. So, Avram goes into Hagar, and she conceives, and everything goes sideways. As soon as Hagar knows that she is pregnant, she begins to view herself with higher honor than Sarai. And she begins to raise 
her own station as a slave to her mistress and begins to despise Sarai. She begins to shame the woman of the house, raising herself above Avram's legal wife. Perhaps she's attempting to take Sarai's place as Avram's wife. Well, suddenly Sarai is afraid even more. What have I done giving this hussy to my husband? Not only is she barren, she she can legally be sent away at any time. So her footing was insecure to begin with. But now her own slave is attempting to supplant her, take her place. She's attempting to operate in a coup. Everything is working against Sarai. And so she goes to Avram and explains it. And just as in the story of the Garden of Eden, once again, we see this idea that in the way that she phrases her accusation, may your judgment be upon you. We see judgment being directed at the husband for action that his wife initiated and requested. The husband of the, as the head of the household is more than just a good idea. If we take scripture at its word, the husband of the household will be responsible for everything that occurs in that household, regardless of whose idea it was. It's the husband's job to be the one to, to take the steps. I know this idea is not popular according to our current societal morality, but as we see from Scripture, as a husband, you have the final say in what happens in your household. If something evil happens in your household, you are the one held responsible for it. Perhaps one of the hardest things to to do is to take a stand against a wife that you love. When you know that thing to be unhealthy, Un- ungodly, and yet she wants it so bad. And frankly, so do you. It's too easy to simply give in to her desire, especially when that thing is something you want yourself. On the flip side, though, it's also too way too easy to simply impose your view and your rule on her and not allow your wife to ha- even have a voice. Now, while it is the wife's duty to submit, it is the husband's duty to love her the same way that Messiah loved his church, his people, to give himself for her. Now, I could venture off into the territory of marriage relationships here, but there are several other opportunities that we'll have to speak about marriage relationships and how the Bible describes those relationships. But let's not get off topic for right now. That's not what's being affirmed in the whole of this text. But it is something that is mentioned in this text, and we need to recognize it. So Abram's response to this is what is expected in the ancient Near East. Hagar was not his wife in the traditional sense. She was Sarai's servant. At times, Hagar was a stand-in for Sarai, in many ways, but also in Abram's bed. But his relationship to Hagar went no further than that. She, Hagar, was not under Abram's direct rule. Hagar was Sarai's slave. It was up to Sarai what happened to Hagar. And so Abram says, Do what's good in your eyes. And again, we see a phrase that harkens back to Genesis 3. So three times now we've seen something in this narrative that points us back to Genesis 3. We've got the, uh, the phrase, Listen to your wife's voice. That's something that's an exact copy from Genesis 3. The idea of God's judgment or Hashem's judgment be upon you for this thing that I asked you to do. 
taking us back to Genesis 3, where Adam was held responsible for Eve being tempted and succumbing to taking the fruit. And then this phrase, do what is good in your own eyes. Again, that's Eve looking at the fruit and defining that it was good to look at with her eyes. These things, they all work together to clue us into something we talked about back in episode two. Each of these things, they're not here alone. Because if we look back to Genesis 3 and the pattern of temptation that we talked about back then, while the specific words aren't in use, many of the ideas that occur in Genesis 3-6 are present in this chapter. She sees that she's barren. She defines having a child as good. Hagar looks desirable to be a mother. She then takes Hagar and gives Hagar to her husband. They're all present in this chapter, even though the words, many of the words aren't necessarily there. We do see the words see and give present in the chapter and then defining as good later. All of these work together to reveal what this chapter is talking about is about temptation. But temptation to do what? Nothing that was done here was specifically evil as we look at it through the lens of morality, especially societal morality. Everything that was done here was done with everyone's willing participation. Everything done here was done according to the law of the land, the custom, and the tradition. Everything done here conformed to the societal norms of good and right and just. And yet, Scripture's telling us there's a temptation present. And even though everyone did what they did and they were all in agreement on it, things still fell Scripture is engaging in discussion of a temptation that leads to a fall, that leads to an exile. What is that temptation, though? As I pointed out back in episode two, every time that we see Scripture enter into a topic as it was previously explored, in this new instance, it's approaching the topic with a slightly different slant than it has at any other time. So what is it that's so wrong here? Well. God had promised that Avram would have a seed, and that his seed would become numerous, but he made no promises that that seed would also come from Sarai. Avram was simply ensuring that God's promise came true, right? God had given the promise. Avram was simply ensuring that God's promise came true. God had given the promise, right? Avram is now supposed to find a way to make it happen. God will bless whatever Avram does in the pursuit of filling his promise. At least... That's what we think. I I look out in the world and I see this all too often, and I have spoken on this before. What is it that Avram is being tempted to do? He's being tempted to be impatient, to make God's promise come into fruition, to force the situation to occur. And we see other examples of this in Scripture, but we see a positive example of someone uh, being patient in the story of David. He gives such a good picture of true patience in the face of God's promises as a contrast to this chapter. I know, I go to David a lot, but David gives such so many awesome examples of how to do the right thing. He doesn't always do it right. He doesn't do it perfectly. He's got some very serious flaws. But in so many cases, he does the right thing. He, he operates in the way that the, the horror shows us that we are to operate. He gives us such a good picture of true patience in the face of God's promises as, as this contrast. If we go to 1 Samuel 16, David was anointed as the future king in Israel. 
and it's not after, until after this event that David then enters the service of King Saul. While he is in Saul's service, Saul recognizes that David has been chosen as the next king, and that causes him to be jealous, and he tries to kill David on multiple occasions. Many circumstances occur. David runs from Saul. As David's running and hiding, he ends up in a cave one time, and saw as Saul is chasing him, Saul also, as he needs to relieve himself, enters into the cave alone. And David can reach out and touch Saul's robe. What is his response when Saul is standing before him in the dark cave? All he has to do is reach out and take it. God's given you this opportunity to take the throne. Does he take it? No. He waits. He doesn't harm Saul. He is patient for God to work out God's will in God's way, rather than chancing causing more harm than good. He recognizes that becoming king isn't something that he can take. It's something that God is going to give. David has a second opportunity to kill Saul. Again, Saul comes out, tries to kill David. Uh, he ends up going to sleep one night, and everyone in his camp goes into a deep sleep, including all of his guards. And David and one of his soldiers sneak in and stand beside Saul's head. And as they looking down over the sleeping form of Saul in the midst of his own army, David's servant offers, I could kill him now. I could pin him to the ground. David tells him not to. Why? Because he knows that seizing the kingship for himself is not the way that God wants him to operate. David recognizes that this position that he's been put in in this moment is a temptation to work against God's will. He recognizes that if God has promised that he is going to give him the kingship, that for him to reach out and to seize the kingship through a method that is not godly, namely killing the king that's previous to him, is a temptation. Avram here, on the other hand, in Genesis 16, he sees God's promises being delayed. He sees the oppression that's settling in on his wife. He can probably see her becoming depressed and closing in on herself. And so he seizes the opportunity to accomplish God's promise. Let's just make it happen. He attempts to take hold of this gift of God under human terms rather than to wait for God's fulfillment of the terms. He enters into a relationship with the world as a means of bringing about the kingdom of God. And this is not the way to accomplish God's kingdom. This is something that we see all too often in the world around us, specifically in the realm of debt. We see God call people into positions. They feel a call to start a church, to start a community, to go do good for the poor. And they enter into a relationship with the world in the form of a relationship with a bank or a politician or some cause or organization to fulfill this promise. And when this happens, when believers in the God of Abraham do this, when they act in this way, they're joining themselves to Hagar in order to build up the kingdom of God. And that is the human way of doing it. Rather than waiting for the promise of God to be accomplished through the established covenant relationship that they have with God. We look at the world and the ways of the world, and we can't possibly see how God's will can be accomplished. 
Because the world doesn't work that way. Bearing seed for the kingdom through a barren woman? That can't happen. Don't be so naive. We need a fertile woman to accomplish this task of bearing seed. Found a community without a building or land or even people? Don't be so naive. Feed the poor? Care for the sick? There are ways to do this already. No, sure, they're headed by humanists and their work isn't going to give any glory to God, but the, the kingdom results are going to be accomplished, right? We'll have a seed, but is it a seed of human origin or is it a seed of divine origin? Too often when people get this promise, they look out on the world and they see a way to accomplish God's plan. And then they can't see any other way. And then they make the excuse, well, that's just how the world works. Our world operates on debt. So let's go sign away my life, sign away my fortunes, and God's just going to have to make it work. And that's the topic of this Parshan. It's something that we all need to learn, and that's patience. It's waiting on God to accomplish His will. The fact of the matter is, is that if you have heard something from God, if he has made you a promise, then it's on God to accomplish the promise. It's on him to provide the means of accomplishment. It is not on you to go out and seize the means. Any delay that occurs between the giving of the promise and the fulfillment of the promise, it's a time of testing. It's a time of temptation. God is questioning, will you remain true and allow me to work, or will you enter into some sort of unholy relationship in an order to attempt to bring about what I have promised under your own power? Without patience, you don't necessarily lose the promise. Avram didn't lose Isaac. He didn't lose the promise of the seed. But he did end up with an Ishmael and a Hagar all sorts of complications in the future. You end up causing great harm to the future fulfillment of the promise. All sorts of adversity being introduced where it doesn't need to be present. Hagar, the world mistreating your covenant partners, Sarai. Your covenant partner, Sarai, mistreating Hagar. No peace results, only strife, and then split, exile. Sarai treats Hagar poorly, and Hagar runs away while still pregnant. She would rather be an escaped slave than continue to live in that demeaning place under Sarai. She's felt the taste of honor, and she doesn't want to let it go. As she's out in the wilderness, she finds herself by a spring, and she is greeted by an angel. Angels are, are a huge topic. We'll explore the idea of angels at a later time. For now, it, angels are simply messengers from God. So a messenger from Hashem greets her. He identifies her by name and then asks where she is coming from and where she is going to. And she responds with her motives. No destination. Where could she possibly go? As an escaped slave, where could she go? She has nowhere to go. She only knows I'm getting away from my mistress, Sarah. Her honor that she had experienced after her conception, that she then 
took too far and used as a reason to berate Avram's wife has been turned to shame. Cain is bearing his ugly head, head of envy and jealousy, and it looks a lot like Sarai's head. Wait, 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 isn't it Hagar that's acting in the manner of Cain? No, no, it's Sarai. Because Sarai is looking at this other woman who's been giving the thing that she wants so desperately for herself. How does she treat the one who gets it? She mistreats her. Treats her horribly. Treats her to the point where she's willing to go face death rather than stay. So the angel, speaking to Hagar, then tells her to re go return to Sarai. Humble yourself before Sarai. Submit to her. You were going too far in your estimation of yourself. You were lifting yourself up in your pride to a position that's not yours to have. Don't worry, though. You will be made great through your son. Your son, though, he's going to be a wild dude. He's going to be opposed to everyone, and everyone's going to be opposed to him. He's going to be one of those people that are just contrary to everyone, everything. Takes a joy in being obstinate and playing devil's advocate. Ishmael was that kind of guy. Oh, and his name? His name's to be Ishmael. It's the name that is given because, as the angel states, Hashem has heard your affliction. The name itself is given in the imperfect form, meaning that something that is not yet complete. Shema is part of the name, to listen, to obey. El being God, and that Yod at the beginning meaning He will. So it's God will hear, future tense. Not something that's present tense, not something that's been completed, but something that is yet to be completed, or that is in the process of occurring. So Hagar then gives Hashem a name, saying, You are the God who sees, or Ata El Roy. And then she names the spring, the well of the living one who sees, Bayar Lechai Roy. And so she returns home. She bears her son for Avram. She names him Ishmael. And eleven years has passed since that very first command had been given in Genesis 12. All this time, since the promise had been given. Hardship surrounding Abraham, Sarai's feelings of shame mounting, pulling her down into a depression, time passing, relentless press swallowing them whole. Every moment that passed is another moment that takes them further and further away from God's promise. Time, man's greatest enemy. Many of us, we can't make it a few weeks without doubting God's word and his promises. Most of us resort to making concessions. Give a little here, give a little there. Allow the world to have a place in our lives in the name of convenience. The promise? Why must it take so long? Why must we be forced to wait every passing moment? It's a torture. And we can see our hope slipping further, further, further away. Eleven years has passed. Eleven years of waiting patiently. Perhaps God isn't going to do it after all. Maybe he's waiting for us to act in the ways that we're familiar with to bring about his promise. Maybe we've been missing the opportunities that he's been putting in front of our face. It's been staring us in our face this whole time, and we've just simply missed it. If we missed it, is it perhaps too late to get the promise? The fact is, if you've been given a, fa a promise by God, you will face doubts especially as time passes. And the promise that he's given seems even more and more and more 
impossible and implausible. As age sets in, as the reproductive organs that never worked past the point of ever working again, as time continues on its inexorable course, doubt sets in, and it's all too easy to allow it to overwhelm you. And that's where patience comes in. Patience doesn't mean not having doubts, doesn't mean being cool at all times, just as faith doesn't mean never having any doubts. Patience means waiting on God to work his will despite the circumstances, despite the angst that's within you, despite the depression that may be trying to take hold of you. It means not seizing control of the situation to make it turn out the way that you think it should. David could have said, well, God has put Saul in front of me for the purpose of allowing me to kill him and take my rightful place. This here is the means that God has provided for his will to be done. But he didn't. He recognized the situation. He analyzed it. He saw this is a temptation. It's a temptation to work outside of God's will by killing whom God has put in place. And so he waited. He waited patiently. Patience means not taking steps that you'll later regret. It means operating in integrity at all times. Remaining pure despite what might seem to be the right options through the eyes of society. Patience means recognizing temptation when it arises and not allowing it to control us. That's the very first lesson of scripture. And in this case, Avram fails too just as Adam did, and just as Eve did. Oh, don't get so smug. You fail too. I fail. We all fail at this. Patience is so very difficult, especially for us in our microwave instant gratification society. Our society doesn't help us at all in this situation. Every problem on TV is solved in a matter of 45 minutes to an hour and a half. Every single one. We pressure cook foods in pots that do it in 20 minutes where it should take hours. Walking in the line of faith and righteousness while remaining patient for God to do his will in his timing and in his manner, it can be one of the most trying and difficult things you will ever do. But it takes conscious awareness of our situation to navigate it successfully. And again, our society makes it so very hard to take that conscious awareness of our surroundings and of ourselves and of our lives because we have so many distractions that can easily drown out our situation. We have to purpose in our minds to examine our situation at all times, to look at and to be aware of our situations, and then to seek the path through that situation that God has intended. That path isn't necessarily the moral path as it's defined by society. Even as it's de defined by the non-violence principle, where everyone is willing to do what it is that you want to do. Patience means seeking the path of covenant, path of life, pursuing the will of God that he has for us. It is, in essence, too, and that is what we need to do when doubts beset us, when the world closes in and everything seems impossible. Stop. Take stock. 
be aware of all that's going on around you, and then seek the path of life. So seek life, my friends. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Derish Chai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Derish Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.